The uh, reading for today is from Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Heavenly Father, we come before you as children who have been redeemed. We come before you as children who are in need of your word, Lord, and especially myself. I need to hear your word and your truth probably more than anyone here, Lord. And I just want to ask that you would, in spite of um, all of my failings, or that you would um, just speak a powerful word to us today and a powerful word to me as well, Lord. Convict us of um, the truth of your good news, Lord, and may it bring joy to our hearts. I just want to ask in the name of your Son, Lord, that we would leave this place with um, with joy, um, with with a peace in our hearts about your amazing work on this earth and your amazing work in our lives, Lord. And I ask that anything that I say that is not in line with your word would just fall to the ground and be forgotten. But if there is anything, Lord, that is according to your word and your truth, Lord, I ask that it would impact all of our hearts in a powerful way today by your spirit, Lord. We just pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. Um, <laughs> first question, who is this letter written to? Of course, it's kind of rhetorical. It's Titus, believe it or not. Um, it's one of the uh, pastoral epistles written. Um, there's a few of them that have been recorded, but Paul was in the habit of writing to people, as you're probably well aware. And uh, um, he also didn't just, didn't just write to churches, he also wrote to individuals. Uh, in this case, he was writing to a man by the name of Titus, who was a friend of his and um, a fellow leader in the bigger church picture. Now, Titus was on the island of uh, of Crete, um, where the where the Cretans live. <laughs> That's a bit of not <laughs> sounds a bit disturbingly close to my last name, but um, especially when you hear what was said about the Cretans. But uh, <laughs> and. Uh, and the question is, well, what was its purpose? What was the purpose of this letter um, that he was writing and um, to Titus? And it was really just to encourage um, encourage Titus to to hold fast to true doctrine um, and to refute, uh, I suppose, a number of um, peoples. There was, if you look in uh, chapter one, chapter one, verse um, ten to sixteen. It talks about the people that um, that Titus is supposed to, to rebuke um, quite violently. And it says, uh, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by their teaching for shameful gain, um, what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. 
Uh, and he goes on to say, They profess to know God, but they deny him, they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So it's a very, very um, stinging rebuke to these people that, that Titus has been commanded to give. And he's really attacking a number of people. He's attacking the, the, the circumcision crowd who are basically going along with Jewish custom and saying, in order to be a, a true follower of Christ, you must not only believe him, but you must also be circumcised, which is adding things to the work of Christ. And then you have um, Paul's attacking uh, the culture of Crete and saying, um, like, even even the Cretans say that they are absurd and ridiculous and evil and, and lazy and um, and so you have people that are making a profession of faith but have no outward sign that, that uh, they actually believe in any kind of way and then you have um, the Jewish Jewish myths um, that are being attacked which is um, essentially self righteousness through works and then you have um, uh, these yeah, people that profess to know God but deny him by their work. So you have legalism on one extreme end of the spectrum and then you have complete um, lawlessness on the other. The, the crowd that would say, well, we have grace now, so let us go and do whatever we want. Let us go and be the Cretan of Cretans. Um, the Cretan, yeah, didn't make any sense. Anyway, um, so there's a... And into that context, um, in Chapter 2, Paul sort of throws out these outrageous like things. I guess he he, he teaches he's telling Titus to teach the um, older men, older women, slaves, just everyone. Everyone who's ever been a Christian on that island is told to be sober minded, dignified, self controlled, sound in faith and sound in faith and love and steadfastness, reverent in behaviour, not slandering, pure, hard working, kind, sound of speech, showing integrity, dignity showing all good faith. So he's just going in there saying, basically you guys need to be the squeakiest of the squeaky, clean people. And uh, into that context, um, it could be quite easy just to, to go through that list and be like, okay, okay we need to be sober-minded and, and very serious and, and be really dignified people. And, and all those things, they kind of have a subtle appeal to them. When we hear those things, like, yeah, I want to be self-controlled and I want to be... And we're sort of... Uh, we could we could spend however long thinking about these things and and, uh, and maybe willing ourselves to be that, and then about a week later, if you're anything anything like myself, you'd sort of that would start to slip, and then you go back into old patterns again. So just just saying do these things is not enough, and it's really not what Paul is is saying. Um, even though he makes this outrageously strong case for living the most upright lives. Um, that that is possible in this life, because it, previously he actually attacks the people that are saying we must live like this and be on the straight and narrow constantly. So um, the key is actually in verse ten, and we're almost at our passage. But it says, "So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour." Um, Various. I don't know what actually other translations say. I did it in the past. <laughs> um, but to adorn something is to make something, um, for example, a Christmas tree, you could adorn a Christmas tree with Christmassy things to make it look more amazing than it. Um, but if the Christmas tree isn't there, it's just going to be a pile of glittery things and it's going to be quite horrible. Or perhaps a better example is... Um, Let's say that there is an attractive woman standing right here. 
Um, it's a bit of a weird example, but we're going to roll with it. Um, just turn the recording thing off. And uh, <coughs> you could adorn the woman in a, a beautiful evening gown, and it would enhance the, the natural beauty that that woman has. Or you could cover her with mud and sticks and sort of sackcloth and things, and it would detract from the natural beauty that she has. Um, likewise, you could, if there was a, a sow, kind of a pig thing, you could put the pig in the most outrageous evening gown in the history of the world, and, uh, and it would still <laughs> look pretty horrible. Or you could just leave it to rummage around in sticks and mud like it likes to do. Um, but there's the, what I'm trying to get at is that just saying we need to be dressed in an evening gown is not enough. There needs to be an internal change to the people. So the, the people that were expounding these Jewish myths were saying, we must be upright, we must be like that, but it's just like dressing a pig in an evening gown. It's still a pig. It just looks a bit odd now. Um, and it's definitely not pleasing to God. But at the same time, you had other people who were professing that they'd been born again, that they'd had this amazing work of God, and that they were, in fact, beautiful, but they were still rolling around in sticks and mud and just banana peels and whatever. They could. It was just an outrageous situation where they, they were not adorning the doctrine of God in any kind of way by their... Um, by their actions, and in fact it says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So they're saying, um, so in order to um, to read the, the passage well, we need to, to keep in mind that what Paul is hinting at, what he's, what he's pressing for is to adorn the gospel with good works, not to be self-righteous in any kind of way. Um, so... It says, for the grace of God has appeared. Um, verse 11, Titus chapter 2. And the first question is, well, what is grace? Um, and, and what is it not? So grace is actually distinct from mercy. Mercy is not receiving a punishment that you deserve. So let's say um, I run someone over in a truck and... Um, the judge decides to let me off. That is strict mercy. That's not grace. But grace is, is receiving something that you just have no... Grace is receiving a million dollars from someone um, for absolutely no reason. Grace is um, unmerited favour. It's, it's it has a richness, a generosity to it. Um, it's a free gift. And that's what grace is. And it says that the grace of God has appeared. Um, so this is a revelation of the character of God. Um, this is a, a, a moment in time where God has revealed something about his character. And it says, um, it's actually referring to the incarnation. It's referring to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself coming as a man to this earth. Um, and whereas Sinai revealed, or when the, when the law was given, it revealed the holiness of God, the justice of God. Um, and... And, and conversely, our inability to keep the law, Christ came with grace. It says he came with grace and truth. Um, so the coming of Christ reveals the sheer grace of God. And uh, if we have a look in um, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 to 10, 
It says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This is the key point here. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our, of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and in immortality to light through the gospel, um, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. So it's saying, grace has been the plan of God from ages past. The law has come. That was not the revealing of God's grace. There's been promises and hints all the way through the scriptures as to this grace that would come. But the, the appearing of grace proper has come with Christ Jesus, come with the incarnation of God as a man and his life and his death and his resurrection. Um, and it says here that... Um, it says that it, grace is not because of work, so it's, it's definitely a gift. Um, and, it's, and it's according to his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So it's completely essential to realize that this has come well before we even existed. This is God having in his mind the plan for our salvation, uh, for to lavish grace upon undeserving people. And we know that it's unmerited because it came before we even existed. And even more so, we know it's unmerited um, because we can never keep the law and the holiness that God demands as revealed at Sinai. So grace has appeared uh, in Christ. And it says that it's bringing salvation for all people. Um, so the, it's talking about richness and it's talking about gifts and it's talking about um, generosity. And it, and it says um, in a wonderful verse, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. So there's just an outrageous gift from God in salvation. It's the chief, um, yeah, the, the, the chief grace um, that he gives us. And it says, um, um, and, and this... Uh, Brain's going to kick in any moment. Don't worry. Quick <laughs> um, <laughs> interlude. We'll play some interlude music. Um, while the while the grace of God and appearing in Christ was a historical event, uh, and and uh, the, the full revelation of Christ actually took place, um, or the full revelation of the grace in Christ took place between certain dates. That message and and the gospel and that good news has gone on. Um, so it's not meant as a one-off event. Oh, that was grace back then. It's the message and the good news has gone forward, and it actually brings salvation all the way up until this point here. Um, so that there's all of us here have had the appearing of the grace of God happen in our lives as well. And so for many of us, not for everyone, there's people that have been very graciously born into Christian families and not been sure about the, the date of their salvation, but um, for, for many of us, at least for myself, there's been a moment in time where the grace of God has come in powerfully and it's not been in response to um, anything righteous that we've done. It's a cry for mercy from our hearts inspired by God. 
and, and comes in and he shows us grace. And it's a, a gift and it's personal and it's planned from before time as well. Uh, if you look at uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 3 to 7, It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So that's our condition before the grace of God has come. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, there's that word again, so when it appeared in our own lives, he saved us not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so this grace has actually come to us. Um, It came once with Christ, and the work was done at that point in time, but God has a plan for all of us to actually be Um, recipients of this grace. This grace has come personally, and that's the key thing, it's come personally into our lives, not just as a historical event in the past, but a grace that has come from a loving God to us, to anyone who accepts Jesus Christ. And I don't want to presume that people, that everyone here has accepted the grace of God. Um, So that is an offer that, I'm not extending it because I don't have that kind of grace, Um, but God has extended Grace to all people. It says salvation to all people, people of all kinds, all um, nations, all ages, all lifestyles in the past, everything. God offers you grace in Jesus Christ if you will come to Him and repent. And that's a and, and maybe this is the first time that you will actually receive that grace, and that grace appears to you in your life. But it comes through trusting Christ. It comes through trusting the the life of Christ that was lived perfectly. No one has ever, there's plenty of people that have theories about Christ, but no one has ever um, questioned the goodness of, of Jesus. Um, people like, oh, he probably didn't exist, or he was a nice guy, or all those sorts of things. But he lived a perfect life, um, and he died a death um, and took all of our sin upon himself. So we have his life, his perfect record before God gets imputed to us, and the perfect um, all all our imperfections get imputed to Him. Given it's a trend, uh, what's it? <laughs> a transmogrification—that's not even a word. Um, a transferal is the one we're after, um, and and so we can have righteousness before God. Uh, I think one of the key things to realise is that it's not just about that that life and death but it's also about the resurrection and this is the the key thing that we so often forget or at least in my life um, uh, for example I was actually in a um, I was in a a Bible study in Wellington and um, a person who's relatively new believer asked an outrageous question it was um, <laughs> so how did Jesus die like um, and, and she was talking not about on the cross but like the second time <laughs> um, and that might seem like 
quite a thing, but like she was asking, like, did I think someone was sarcastic and said like, oh, I was a boating accident or something like that. Um, but it's a it's a quite tragic misunderstanding um, and, but we can also we can live like that, we can live like Christ hasn't actually um, been raised and that the Holy Spirit hasn't come and we can live in a um, in a way that has a vague notion that Christ might have died for us and that we owe him something or something like that we don't live in a way often or at least I don't that is empowered by God in the, in the reality of the, the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the the joy and the fellowship of that. Um, it's just a, a sneaky quote here from an unknown person, but it made sense. Um, it says, Christ's death on the cross provides a means for man's sin to be forgiven. Christ's resurrection provides the means for man to live free from sin. Jesus Christ is not only man's saviour, he is also man's life. Are you attempting to live for him based upon the belief that he died for you or are you experiencing the power of his life living in and through you? One produces continual failures, the other produces the power of a life that has risen from the dead. And the truth is, it says in um, Colossians, that we've been raised with Christ. And this is, I suppose, when it says that the grace of God has appeared and has brought salvation, we're talking about a living relationship. We're not talking about a... Um, just a, a, a static kind of belief. We're talking about a living relationship, um, and then, and that's why when we turn to verse 12, it says, "Training us to renounce godly, ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age." I think I just want to emphasise: we've got an appearing, um, an appearing of the of Christ, and an and in the past and also an appearing to us um, of that grace but then we actually live in the present age uh, so the question might be well how can grace train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions um, and this is where it really comes down to um, holding attention in our hearts and in our minds between the coming of Christ in the future which it talks about in verse 13 because it says um, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ and I think if you were just to use a few examples, if you were living in a city and you knew that this city was going to get taken over by a government that had um, different values to and different ways of doing things um, to the current way that things are done, you would, you would, if you were wise, you would start to figure out what that way is and you would start to apply those sorts of things in advance so that when that transition took place, you wouldn't be caught well off guard. Or if you knew that if you're going to build a sandcastle on the beach, you would figure out where the high tide mark is and you'd build it slightly beyond that. You wouldn't build it halfway up the beach uh, if you knew that the tide was going to come away and wash it all away. And likewise, we know we're not just we're not just living this life in the present age um, as if it was as if the present age extended indefinitely. It doesn't. It has a, a specific endpoint, and during that time, we're actually waiting 
for a blessed hope, it says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever um, been in a situation where someone's invited you around for dinner and you maybe forget and so you're just like, sweet, I am going to eat some Mars bars, like mini Mars bars, it's going to be amazing. I may even like throw in a crunchy bar in there as well. And, uh, and so then you may have eaten... I don't know, let's say, this has happened to me before, I don't know if this happens to other people, but uh, <laughs> I've probably consumed a lot of Cadbury things, and then I'm like, oh, it's dinner time now, and i completely forgotten, and I go along like, Ugh, and just really, um, I can't enjoy the, the, the meal that is coming up, um, because I've actually just scoffed myself on chocolate. Um, and when it says that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, it's kind of a picture of, um, of, of what, how we should be living. We're living for something in the future. We know that we've been invited. It even talks about a, a wedding feast. But we know that we've been invited to something well beyond and more exciting and better um, than the things of this present age. So when it talks about um, when it talks about renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, it's not talking about being killjoys. It's not talking about being um, misers or people that are just the fun police, that sort of thing. Um, we must be self-controlled and upright and godly. Um, it's not to hassle the English. <laughs> um, I just like accents, but. Um, it's talking about living in such a way and, and the knowledge of what is coming. It's keeping, a, keeping that tension between um, what has been, uh, the grace that's been revealed and the grace that is to come and realising that we live in the present age and that this present age will not last forever and that we are bound for another place. So when it talks about worldly passions and you might think, okay, there's a passion, a worldly passion, say, let's say to get wealthy, um, if we're, to, if we're to throw ourselves into that, um, we know that wealth will disappear and that when Christ comes, or we, we, we can't take anything with us. So if we, if we throw all our eggs in that particular basket, we know it's going to get dropped. It's kind of a metaphor-breaking thing, but um, <laughs> that, that basket is not going to last. Um, or let's say fame um, is it's not a worthy pursuit. It's... In, uh, or seeking power or seeking glory in this life knowing that the one who has all wealth and fame and power and glory is coming to do away with all these things and to give us the full inheritance of everything that he's promised so we don't want to be those people that have scoffed ourselves on ultimately unsatisfying worldly things and, and therefore um, it's kind of like we have to take a 90 degree turn on our road as soon as Christ comes. We've, we've like, Oop, been going the wrong way the whole time. We want to be in line with what Christ has for us. Um, so to live a self-controlled and upright and godly life is actually to say yes to things. It's not saying no, but we're saying yes to the better things, yes to the things that are in the future. Um, yes, as we wait for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. So we need to keep in mind this is a short time on this earth um, and we need to maintain that tension between the first appearing of Christ and keeping that in mind, all that he has done for us 
realising that we live in the present age, but that he is coming again. And this is our blessed hope. Uh, we, we must hold on to those future promises. Um, he's coming again, and his first coming was in humility to, um, to purchase us. In his second coming, he's actually coming to glorify us and to give us the full inheritance of everything that he's promised us. But if you're anything like, like me, I just, in all honesty, like the last maybe two or so months, um, yeah, they've not been months that have been focused on the glory that is to come. I've been sort of glorifying myself. Um, and it's been hard, really, really hard, just to have a, a focus on um, on God and, and to have a focus on all that he's done for me in the past and all that he's going to do in the future. If I'm honest, my life has been like driving in different directions and, and just to even to hear this and to be like, wow, I've been kind of, I might be climbing up the ladder, but it's up against the wrong building at the moment, and that's just being honest. Um, so we need to actually keep these things in mind because so many people go through life, um, yeah, and, and they just squander the whole thing. And <laughs> I don't want to be one of those people, and I'm sure that you don't either. So we need to keep a focus on, on Christ who is returning. Um, and the reason why, um, it, and is it also in uh, verse 14, it says, um, or from verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we come and we're thinking about not just some deity who we have to, I don't know, offer up our first whatever to in order that we might appease them. We're actually talking about the God of the universe who gave himself for us, who took upon himself all of our hell, all of our judgment, all of our iniquity, everything that is abhorrent. Um, he took it upon himself and, and he drank down God's wrath on our behalf. And he did it to redeem us from that lawlessness. Um, he desires, and this is, the, this is the beautiful thing, it says, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So rather than some... <laughs> it's kind of an odd thing to be, to be a possession, but it kind of... Um, most gods around the world are possessions. They belong maybe above your stove or something like that. And... Um, but we are to be a possession, a purified possession of Jesus Christ. Um, and and uh, <laughs> we are possessions that he's actually given himself for. He's paid for it abundantly. Um, he lavishes his grace upon us and, and he loves us with such an intense love. And the response for that is a zealousness for good work. So it's always going to be a response. When... when Paul is writing to Titus about being upright, about being godly, about um, in everything that we do being uh, honouring God. This zealousness is, is that it's a heart response to the love that Christ has for us. Um, so to conclude, we must look to the future. We must look to. We must be waiting for Christ. If we're not waiting for Him, 
we're going to be doing all sorts of other things. We're going to be pursuing things which may seem innocuous in, in and of themselves, but um, yeah, they, they fix your eyes on Jesus, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> awesome, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your grace. Thank you for the love that you have for us. Um, thank you for the plan that you've had from um, all ages past. Thank you that we are secure in you because of the work that was done by Jesus and because of your faithfulness to us, Lord. We just want to ask that um, you would cause our eyes to be fixed on you, cause our hearts to be longing for you, um, Give us the desire to abide in you and to abide in your word specifically, Lord, to refresh our hearts with the hope of the gospel, Lord, as it is so abundantly laid out in all, all of your words, Lord. And may those words be applied to our heart as well. Um, yeah, Lord, we just pray this in the name of Jesus.